this is Brian Sears, government reporter for The Daily Record. You're listening to the Conduit Street Podcast, the official podcast of the Maryland Association of Counties and policy-obsessed reporters who are on late-night baby duty. Is it wrong I make the boys listen? Welcome to the Conduit Street Podcast. Kevin Canale here with Michael Sanderson. Michael, it is Thursday, March 3rd. We are not after dark. We are during the day. We're in the Mako office, but we are in our separate offices because we have a very special guest today joining us virtually. But how are you? You holding up okay? Doing good. Starting to feel like session. Been in town this week and seeing lots of people and getting a lot of stuff done. So this is this is actually starting to feel increasingly normal around town. I'm liking it. Agree. And today we are going to cover a topic that is top of everyone's minds in Annapolis. It's gotten a lot of coverage over the the past few years. And this year seems to be a year in which it's going to get some movement. And that is cannabis. And to help us do that, Anne Arundel County Professor Shad Ewart. Shad, you are an expert in this field. I see you now all over the radio. Uh, You know, we're really happy to have you with us. There's a lot to get through today, but we're going to talk about just cannabis generally, where we are in Maryland, where we it looks like we're going, what the path forward is for adult use cannabis. But Chad, thank you so much for being with us. How are you today? I'm doing great, uh, Kevin. Uh, uh, Thank you for having me on. Um, Anytime I can uh, help spread some uh, information about uh, about cannabis uh, and education. Hey, listen, that's the business I'm in. Uh, I'm all for it. So appreciate the opportunity. We're, we're big supporters of our community colleges. Um, it's a big investment from our county governments. And I think some people have the impression that our two-year schools are super transactional and it's about getting people their associate's degree and on the way to being accountants and nurses and so forth. But there's an awful lot of rich education happening at our community colleges, Anne Arundel among them, and Professor Ewart's class, certainly an, an interesting, noteworthy part of that. So glad, really glad to have you with us today. Thanks, Mike. So, Shad, real quick, just up front, can you talk a little bit about your your role at AACC, your teaching topics, what you focus on? Because I've always been fascinated by that, and I know that the popularity seemingly has grown over time. Um, Absolutely. So I am a business professor. I'm in the business management department, and currently I am the academic chair of that department as well. So besides having teaching duties, I have administrative duties at the college as well. Um, But in terms of my, so I've taught a wide variety of business courses from intro to business. I tend to do a lot of the marketing courses. I'm a bit of a salesperson, I guess. Um, And so it's a, it's a kind of natural fit for me, but the cannabis course has been with us now since, um, geez, I guess that was about 2016, I think was the very first semester that we launched. So we launched the course prior to actual legalization in, um, in Maryland. They were still kind of hacking their way through the original um, uh, regulations there. Um, the course is, uh, continues to be very popular, even though it is a standalone course at Anne Arundel. So what that means is it's not associated with any degree program. So people take the course simply to take the course. Some of them, I guess, might need a business elective or something like that. But uh, I have to tell you, from a a teaching standpoint, one of the greatest things that I've ever had is the the fact that I have every single student in that course wants to be there. 
Um, I've, taught, <laughs> I've taught accounting before and I like teaching accounting. I think I'm a pretty good accounting teacher, but uh, you know, you got to drag some people through that. They, they come at you with, oh, I'm math phobic and stuff like that. And I'm like, listen, we add, subtract, and on wacky days we divide. It's called arithmetic, people. You can handle it here. But in the <laughs> cannabis course, it's, um, it's, it's pretty much everybody wants to be there. The students have kind of bifurcated into uh, uh, two groups in the course. Uh, there might be a smaller third group, but the two major groups of people that seem to be interested in the course are those that want to work in the field. Um, listen, one of the things you have to know uh, uh, to get a job in this Uh, we go through Comar, um, one one line at a time. It's not pretty, but it's um, it's amazing. And again, in terms of uh, in terms of kind of the interest in the course, uh, one really quick story. I once came down. This was back when we were teaching in person, and I, I taught the class at night. And I came down into the uh, to the area where the uh, the classroom was, and in the hallway, the students had turned off all the lights. Not only they turned off the lights, they had turned, they had uh, used uh, paper to kind of blacken out all the light coming from even the classrooms. And I came down there and they were down sitting, you know, at two ends of the hallway and they had their cameras out. And I said, what are you doing? And they're like, well, the regulation said that, that you know, 25 feet, you had to have full facial recognition uh, in a new moon. And I, I was like, well, wow, they actually read that line. That single individual line and that, I mean, and that kind of shows who's interested in it. So one, I've got the group of students that want to get a job in the field and the other ones are the entrepreneurs. Um, uh, my shtick has always been to compare this to the gold rush. I call it the green rush. And in the gold rush, the money that was made was not made by the people that uh, sold, uh, that uh, found the gold nuggets. The people who sold the picks and shovels. Levi Strauss is my favorite example. Levi didn't find a single gold nugget, but he did extremely well in the clothing business uh, and due to the gold rush there. So I think it is those ancillary businesses that really um, uh, um, are, are the opportunities, at least for the students at a community college that don't have the economic wherewithal, a million dollars in the bank if you want to get a dispensary open, maybe $20 million in the bank because you can't get to the banking system if you want to open a, a growth facility. So their opportunities tend to be in these ancillary businesses. I think it's fascinating and I've always loved the analogy to the gold rush. But but off the top too, um, I learned, Shad, that you you have uh, you're somewhat of a celebrity in, in certain circles that are unrelated to all of this. And, and I learned about that from Michael. And, and that was a long time ago when, when I think we first crossed paths. But, but Michael, what, what the heck are we talking about here? Shad is a celebrity. Well, it's a, it's a quirky thing. I had this weird, like, like worlds colliding moment because, fine, okay, we've got, we've got this guy coming from the community college. He's going to talk at one of our conferences, talking about the business of cannabis, and that's relevant. We're doing the zoning for facilities and all this kind of stuff. So that's great. He comes out and talks. Like that name Shad is kind of unusual. I've heard it before. Can't quite you know place it exactly. And then it sort of strikes me, this is Shad from D.C. I know him. I'm a loyal little follower of this other you know radio show, now turned podcast with Tony Kornheiser, big big wig from the Washington Post and ESPN and so forth. Does his own podcast and. Shad is like a big time get for us among the community who follow Mr. Tony and company. So this is this is a really big moment for me personally. Well, um, I got to say, Michael, your definition of celebrity is uh, is woeful. If my ability to crank out 17 syllables cleft in lines of five, seven and five 
has made me famous. Oh, well, I guess I am. I'm a, um, I am, uh, I would say, a semi-loyal little. I don't get to listen quite as much as I, I used to. The I don't quite enjoy the radio part. I mean, excuse me, the podcast as much as I did enjoy the radio. I like kind of that live interaction there. But uh, yeah. thank you. Um, uh, do you need a haiku? Well, I was just say, well we, we would love a, I mean, if you got one ready to roll, you know what? Really I, thrilling. Yeah. I, I can only remember one. And years ago, I, I got the opportunity to visit the PTI show and I brought my son with him. And uh, Kornheiser didn't recognize me. Well, he never had met me before. But in the end, there's a point where they take the pictures and he introduces himself. And Wilbon wasn't there. And I said, <laughs> I'm Shed from DC. And he's like, oh my God, this guy is saving my butt, you know, this, this, this. And there was a hockey guest that day. And the only haiku I re ever remember, and because he asked me, he goes, oh, tell him one of your haikus, um, is, be is a haiku because I am from the city of Detroit. Uh, that's where I was born and raised. And the city of Detroit, one of the hockey town, as we refer to it, um, I know some people will argue with that terminology there. Uh, many, many years ago, when Detroit first won the Stanley Cup, there was a large Greek population there, and uh, the Stanley Cup was only two rounds, so you only had to win four and four. You only had to win eight games. So um, at, during that uh, uh, Stanley Cup, uh, one of the fans threw an octopus out onto the ice, and that has become a tradition at uh, uh, Red Wing games. Yep. So the only haiku I could ever remember is, no score overtime, the octopus in my pants, is starting to smell. So I like it. I like that's it. as good as it gets here, man. That's as good as it gets. We are hockey fans. The, the old Joe Lewis Arena in Detroit classic. I was there when Detroit beat the Caps in 98 for the Stanley Cup. So, uh, you know, I'm not a huge Red Wings fan, but I can appreciate that haiku very much. So, Shad, let's jump right into what you, the, the real reason that you're with us today and for today's conversation. Cannabis. It's a big issue, not just here in Maryland, but across the country. And Shad, states are really all over the map with how they're handling this, both medical cannabis and with legal adult use. It seems like Maryland is leaning towards putting adult use cannabis on the ballot for 2022. We know we already have a medical cannabis system here in the state, but there are a lot of issues to iron out here, right? And it's not just legalized adult use, right? And there's a lot of stuff going on here that you have to think about that are sort of the underlying issues that have to be addressed. So can you, can you sort of give us the 30,000 foot view of of where states are with cannabis and some of the issues that Maryland's going to have to figure out before this really becomes a thing. Well, yeah. So first of all, let's 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 get this out here. Maryland has not followed the typical pattern of most other states. Most uh, most other states have legalized medical cannabis, and within two, three, or four years, they have adult use or recreational cannabis. The only outlier in there is uh, California, which uh, legalized initially in 1996, and it wasn't until 2018. Uh, that they had um, adult use or recreational. We got 18 states with recreational right now. We got 38 with medical. Um, yes, uh, uh, the line I like to use is islands of legality and a sea of illegality. It is still illegal at the federal level here. Um, but the interesting thing that we get to look at here with respect to this is that, and, and for me as an academic, it's, it's even more interesting, is the ability to look at each state as an individual. Each one is its own little economic experiment. I mean, listen, we've got we've we've got almost a a tremendous um, uh, um, 
a health experiment that is going on here in America. We really do. I mean, we have uh, uh, we are having people use a medicine that has not been FDA approved. The only thing we have approved from the cannabis plant so far is Epidilex, which is a, a seizure treatment, and for just two specific types of uh, epilepsies. Um, but um, no, we've got a gigantic medical experiment going on, and we have a gigantic ec- economic experiment going on. So, number one, I think Maryland is late to the the battle here. Um, I think Maryland, um, uh, my class is calculated that um, Maryland would have started out even two or three years ago had they legalized recreationally um, at about 200 to $250 million in tax revenue uh, just from the sale of cannabis. So I think they have missed out on that for a couple of years. That's comparison to Colorado in terms of the same size and and, and similar um, uh, 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 tourist type uh, interactions and stuff like that where those estimates were made. Um, I think that is a, a problem. I think the other problem is, is the way in which Maryland licenses the people that can participate in this industry. Uh, I said before on one of the radio shows that more people have orbited the moon or uh, walked on the moon that can grow than can grow cannabis in the state of Maryland. Uh, 22 have been to the moon or have orbited, but only 18 humans on the entire planet Earth are allowed to grow cannabis in, in, in the state of Maryland. We have artificially, we have artificially made licenses valuable. And we do this here in Maryland and most states as well. There's only two that aren't doing this by capping the number of licenses. And to me, this is the, and, and listen, we've got a lot of other issues here, but so many things are tied up in this idea of having a set number of licenses or no cap on the licenses here. So let me first explain that when I say no cap on licenses, I still want everyone that would get a license to adhere to the exact same standards that everybody else has to, all right? You don't get the license unless in the Maryland Medical Cannabis Commission can write the regulations and what those standards are gonna be. They did it before when they went through the licensing process. So we know what the standards are. So I'm just saying that anyone that meets that standard should be able to have a license. Couple that with the fact that Maryland has some of the most rigorous testing. I mean, the testing here in Maryland on this on this plant, your medicine, my God, it is absolutely, on some level, it's almost insane. Um, I mean, they will even list the items that the plant grows in. Now, a lot of times when you're growing the plant, it's not always grown in soil, it can be grown hydroponically, and therefore the medium in which the plant is grown in is completely inert. It adds nothing. All the nutrients come from the solutions that you add to it and stuff like that. But to actually list that, I mean, imagine going to buy a strawberry and having them list the soil as part. No, I'm getting a strawberry here. So I think this idea of setting a very high standard and then maintaining the rigorous testing will ensure that we have an absolutely clean product that is going out. But the advantage, here's the advantage of not having the caps on licenses. It won't be attractive for the multi-state operators to come into Maryland and scap up all of these licenses. And that's what they're doing right now. We have a number of multi-state operators operating right now. They hold a number of different licenses. They hold grow licenses, processing license, and dispensary licenses. And that means, okay, yes, jobs are being created in Maryland, and that's a good thing. We love that. We want more jobs in Maryland. And for every job in the cannabis industry, those ancillary businesses, they're creating about three jobs. So we got a three-time multiplier there. 
But to me, the important thing is we need to keep the wealth in Maryland. We need to keep the wealth in Maryland and wealth only comes from ownership. So this idea of uh, social inequity, it's been known forever. I mean, listen, that was why we had the second round of licensing in Maryland. We had the first round of licensing uh, uh, and 15 of the growers all of them white males, all in a state where it's 60% African-American. How the heck is that happening? Well, that's happening because the system that we have set up in the way that we grant those licenses via the, the, the score sheet and all of the processes that are going on with the MMCC, what they do is they, they artificially favor these folks. And as these folks get larger, what that means is they will hold licenses in multiple states, and each one's different. Sometimes they have to buy into it. Sometimes they're applying for it. Sometimes they're doing it through mergers and stuff like that. But as they get economically stronger, what that means is that next time the licenses come up, they're going to throw 10 attorneys and 10 accountants and 10 professional writers at it. And you know what that means? That that little entrepreneur that has the great idea but doesn't have that tremendous resources is not going to end up with that license. So I think that is such a central issue here that can actually resolve a lot of problems and it can also keep the wealth here in Maryland. Now, what have we seen? How have other states tried to deal with this? So other states have tried to keep the cap on license, but oh, we're going to give we're going to give some of the licenses to uh, you know people of color or people whose communities have been uh, disproportionately affected by uh, policing in the cannabis industry. All right. So what they do is they set up small grows, okay, a small grow license, like kind of like um like a brew pub where you can make your beer there, but you can only sell your beer in your restaurant. So Michigan has this, they have that where you can grow there and you can sell directly to consumers, but you can't sell to other dispensaries. And there's a pretty heavy duty plant limit on that. And they say, okay, we're gonna set those aside for people of color. You know what that is? That's throwing people crumbs. That is throwing people crumbs because the true wealth is gonna come from the big facilities here. And then what Illinois was able to say afterwards is say, oh, but see, look at the 30% of our, uh, of our grow license holders are, are people of color. Well, yeah, they got the, the 30% that are the itty bitty crumbs. All right. Yes, they got the license, but it, it isn't equal to the other licenses here. So I, I think this connects to part of the debate that's still really ripe in the General Assembly right now. And that is there's there's the centerpiece of this debate, which is you put something on the ballot or you just pass a bill in Maryland, you'd be, you'd be legally on, on solid ground to just pass a bill and say, we'll take this substance off the list of controlled dangerous substances that are illegal for, for sale or use in the state and so forth. And as you said, the Island of legality in the, in the weird ocean of illegality, that's a weird spot, but there's also a lot with implementation. And, and so the central sort of political question sounds like flipping a switch but there's a ton more to do in implementation. Part of this is what you're getting to uh, along the lines of uh, you know, licensing structure, a limitation structure, an oversight and that sort of thing. I'm sure there's an instinct by a well-intentioned uh, government to say, this is the kind of, uh, this kind of industry that you want to limit and oversee and regulate. And that's, I'm sure, the source of the ideas of let's limit the number of licenses, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but, you know, the, the follow through there is this gets complicated quickly, right? So 
just on the business side, just on the granting of licenses and who may do what in this new fledgling industry is already like my head's already spinning with how complicated this could be. Um, and the legislature's in a weird spot on this because they still haven't decided whether whether to pass the implementation first and put it on the ballot potentially, or whether you put the question on the ballot and then you connect all the dots on these questions, presumably after the voters have approved it. Well, Michael, you know what? I think putting it on the ballot of the referendum, I believe that is House Bill 1, that is kicking the can down the road. That is, we know what the answer is going to be in November. We know that the Maryland citizens are going to approve it, all right? So all you've done is just moved it down the road and then say, oh, now that we've approved it, let's write write the uh, uh, regulations for this. They should have been writing the regulations. They have enough states to look at. They have enough examples. Again, they have 38, the 38 islands of legality out there. And listen, Maryland learned a lot. They have done some things very well. So let's let's not, you know, uh, hammer them all the time here. What they did well was they didn't force vertical integration. All right. In some states they had you got the license to grow, you got a license to process and you got a license to dispense, but you could only dispense what you grew. Here in Maryland, you can buy from anyone and they they play each other off of each other. You know, hey, I'm getting this. This price on a 10 pound, what, sharpen your pencil. Can you help me out? And then call the other grower back. Hey, they sharpen their pencil. Can you sharpen yours? Listen, that's competition. We like that. We have seen, see, listen, I have two definitions or two kind of criteria for success of this industry in a state. And Maryland has met both of those. Number one, the price of medicine has come down. And we have absolutely seen that. Since December 2017, when we first opened up in uh, Montgomery County, uh, about $400, about an ounce of flour for the top shelf stuff, that was the price. That's come down about 33%. Um, uh, So number one, patients are getting their medicine at a better rate. Good. That is good. The second thing that needs to happen, second thing that needs to happen is that the industry has to be successful because people will just abandon the business. They will go. I I think they're entrepreneurs. I think that some of them, you know, love cannabis and that's why they got into it. Others are just serial entrepreneurs and they just like to create businesses. And you know what? If the business they created doesn't work, they're going to go find another business to create. So Maryland has done those things well. I think they have had enough time. They have have enough information. They have enough examples to start writing these regulations. I think they are pushing it down the road. And I think they're doing it because the people that currently have the licenses like this kind of insular situation that they have. They, you know, they're the only 18 that can grow here. They're the only, you know, 12 or 13 that can process. Some of the growers have process licenses as well. You know, in the dispensaries, they're the only ones. You know, as the patient numbers continue to go up, the market keeps getting bigger. If they simply maintain their market share, each one of them kind of keep growing along with it. When recreational comes, Michael, you are absolutely correct. There are a lot of decisions you have to make about infrastructure. So one of the first decisions is, do we allow the current people that have the licenses to just expand into recreational? Most states have done that. And I think you are seeing that right now. We are seeing um, the growers are building out and they are anticipating this. So they know this is coming and they know that is going to be the most likely situation is that they will just simply move into the recreational market. So that's that's fairly simple to deal with. We have processors in place that can handle the the volume. That's fairly easy to deal with. The, The issue does become the dispensaries. 
All right. How do we work a medical and a recreational? Well, there's a tax issue with that that we can talk about a little bit later, but there's also just kind of a physical issue with this. So a couple, some states have said, no, if you're a medical facility, you're a medical facility. And if you would like to go apply for a recreational license dispensary, go ahead. And you probably will get it because you know how to run a business and we know you know how to run a business as well. A number of other states like um, uh, my sister lives out in Nevada, so I've had a chance to, to, to go out there and talk to some dispensary owners. Now, what's interesting about them, they had rec- uh, uh, medical first and then they added recreational. They make them have two doors. Mm-hmm. Um, you go in and you check in. And if you say, hey, I'm just recreational, then all they say is, are you 21? And then you're allowed to go into the door there. If you say you're medical, then you get the card out and then they go through the process. And there is a process here in Maryland. Uh, uh, Patients are only allowed to get, there's a 30 day supply. So that has to be checked. That's all in the computer system. You can't go around to different dispensaries and try to exceed that. So there's a bit of a check-in procedure there. But um, that to me is is a big question is how will we kind of structurally do it? And I do believe most of the dispensaries believe they will be allowed into the industry immediately, but they may need to have separate rooms. So I have seen a couple of them starting to build out kind of another area there. The other question is products. The products are going to be very different, all right? In, all right. The, the reality is with recreational, we are they're going to chase THC. Mm-hmm. They're going to cha- they're going to try to grow the strains with the highest THC. They're going to try to make the edibles with the highest THC. That that is what they are going to chase. And some of the other some of the items like the infused items like we have here in Maryland, like the Altoid mints that help people sleep. They're not, nobody is in a recreational world going to buy those. That is a medical type product. A lot of the topicals, a lot of the transdermal patches, those are also really designed for the medical world here. And they're not going to be attractive to the uh, uh, recreational world. So my great fear is, is that if they feel that the big money is in recreational, then the growers and everybody else is going to chase yield and they're going to chase um, a THC. Chasing THC is a matter of um, uh, the genetics and how you grow the plant. So the genotype and the phenotype. But when it comes to the products, you know, that's going to be something that my fear is, is that some of those things will be abandoned. Um, And to chase yield, what they're going to do is they're going to grow outdoors. And that is going to be one of the big impacts that people are physically going to have from this this change because they're going to smell it. Ask Mm -hmm. any of the constituents that live near a hemp farm right now, and it smells like it. And then some of them like it and some of them don't like it. So that is going to be a challenge as well. Yeah, definitely zoning issues and, and, you know, getting back to some of the, the other issues that we have to challenge. Equity, we've talked a little bit about that. Also, you know, how do you handle people who have been, you know, previously convicted for for crimes related to cannabis and not necessarily the big, you know, a drug deal or big distributors, but people who have been popped for, you know, possession and, and whatnot, and maybe they went to jail or prison. What do you deal with all that? And I think that's something that has to be worked out. And the issue of putting it on the ballot, most states have done it that way. But now, Shad, we've seen a couple that have just passed a bill, right? They've just passed a bill to implement. They didn't put it on the ballot. So that door is, is open. You can understand I think from a legislator's perspective, there are multiple reasons why I think you want to put it on the ballot, you know, to get mm-hmm. that insulation. And look, everybody said it was okay. I agree with you. It will pass. But what's the process been like? What do you know about the states who have just done this with a bill? It's implemented. It's not on the ballot. 
Has that seemed to work okay? And is that a model that, you know, again, maybe some other states that haven't done this yet are going to start looking at besides putting it on the ballot? Uh, I think it, I think it's actually fewer have put it on a ballot than have actually done really? it just legislatively here. So no, we have uh, great models for that. New York being another one up there that's uh, that's done it this way and stuff. So no, and 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 in terms of the uh, the the expungement issue, in terms of previous uh, cannabis arrests, I see that's part of HB thirty seven. Um, that's part of that bill as well. That has to be done. Um, this is uh, I, I would love to see it done at the federal level, so it would be a little bit easier um, right. to, to 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 clear the records and stuff good like luck. that. Good luck with that one. Good yeah, luck exactly. Um, and listen, what we know, what we do know about cannabis usage, and we don't know a lot. That's one of the areas I try to steer my students to try to understand. We try to interview people and try to do kind of uh, uh, typical market research and, and and focus groups and stuff like that. But the problem we end up with is that people lie about their cannabis usage. Uh, sometimes they brag and they want to, t- you know, oh, I do it all the time and stuff like that doesn't affect me. And other people are afraid to, you know, explain how much they use it because they're nervous. Oh, my God, he's going to think I'm a drug addict or something like that. Um, so that is going to be an issue as well. But what we do know about usage is this. It is absolutely equal across races, across ethnicities, across economic strata. It is absolutely equal. Equal. What we also know is that if you are a young black male, there's a four time higher chance that you're going to be arrested. So just likely a young Asian male or a young Hispanic male or a young white male would use it. But if you're a young black male, your chance of getting arrested is four times higher. So absolutely has to be dealt with the expungement issue. That's a little bit above my pay grade in terms of how to deal with that. But, um, you know, that that is something that HB uh, 837. The other thing in HB 837 that I do like and I like this a lot here, and that is home growing. That is home growing. So um, I believe that home growing is the greatest form of social equity. If you can manufacture and make your own medicine, uh, uh, good for you. That's, that's actually great for you. And that also may solve that problem that once we have recreational and if all of the emphasis goes towards yield and growing outdoors and just chasing high THC, um, that may mean that those you know, the problem is what if you have a thousand people in Maryland that suffer from one condition, all right? And maybe 30 or 40% of them would consider using cannabis, all right? So you got three or 400 potential, you know, customers. Nobody's going to grow for three or 400 people. Nobody's going to grow for three or 400 people. Right, right now, it is sleep, anxiety, pain. These are the three big things that people complain about. It is the three big things that the, the, you know, people are trying to, you know, grow for, or at least promote the cannabinoids that help with those things there. So home growing, I think is absolutely critical. I cannot stand the argument that, oh, it's going to cut away from the dispensaries. The dispensary sales are going to plummet if you allow people to grow at home. It, every single state that has home growing, it is less than a half percent, less than a half percent. And in many cases, actually, there is an increase in dispensary sales after home growing is allowed because people then, hey, I'm pretty good at this, but I'd like to try some other things. And then they end up going to the dispensaries. I think uh, 837 does have a limit of two plants. You know, that's a little small of a limit there. Here we have six in DC. Um, and actually, we can have up to 12 if you you have two 21-year-olds in the house. But if you can grow your own uh, medicine, I do think that is valuable. The other thing is that people don't realize, yes, it's a weed. Yes, it grows fairly simple. It's not that easy to grow at home. 
I mean, there is going to be some investment. You do have to buy the lighting. You have to buy the equipment to do this. Um, so that's not that easy. But if it's the only way that I can get my medicine, then I'm going to try to grow my own medicine. Hmm. So I'm interested. So, all right, so I've got, I've got like a hundred more things. But, uh, so I'm, I'm interested in one thing that you mentioned, you sort of put a pin in and, and that's the tax angle here. And like local governments, I think, have a stake in this, but that's not really an interesting thing to talk about with you. If we want to trudge into that later on another pod, we'll do that. What I, what I am interested, though, is this seems like a peculiar circumstance where this this legal um, this legal marketplace has been created artificially state by state, and Maryland's not the first to have medical use come first and then potentially queued up some years behind uh, to have recreational or adult use, however you want to phrase it. And then you presumably we'll still end up in a circumstance where medical use would be not subject to a tax, but recreational or adult use would be subject to a tax. I have heard secondhand from other states, like in Washington state in particular, a lot of them said, the medical was so broad and so many people who probably just wanted recreational use found their way to a medical card that the tax revenues ended up being, you know, it's, it's sort of like the, 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 um, the recreational use was purely secondary because medical established such a big beachhead. I don't know if tax is a big part of that, but do you have any thoughts on like where's Maryland situated on that front or any thoughts on where taxes and so forth fit into that? Well, I think there's a couple of interesting factors here. So, um, you know, the Washington state issue was uh, primarily because getting the medical card out in Washington state was really fairly simple to do. Um, you have, uh, you know, California has had this before and Washington state has had this before. They call them 420 doctors. Basically, you drop 85 bucks on them, tell them my back hurts and all of a sudden they give you the card. Maryland is a little more strict. I mean, you've got to see a certified provider. Um, they do want you to go back a second time. They don't require it. And it's a bit of a cumbersome process. Um, so I'm not that worried about that aspect of it. And listen, I think a lot of recreational sales in Maryland is going to come from tourists and they're not going to have, I mean, they're here for a week or two at Ocean City or, you know, come to visit Baltimore or something like that. They're not going to have enough time to get their medical card. So they're just going to walk to the recreational place there. So in terms of how they tax it, my God, I'm, I'm looking at a I've got a thing here on all the uh, marijuana tax revenue here. There isn't one state that's the same as the other. I mean, some of them tax it on the sale between, let's say, the grower to the processor. Mm -hmm. Some of them tax it on the processor sale to the, uh, to the, uh, to the dispensary. Most of them do have a, a sales tax. Um, somewhere involved in there or some kind of excise tax. Right. That's a, probably above my pay grade as to what, the, but what I can tell you is this, consumers are smart. All right. And one of the things that Washington did very poorly when they first legalized, because they've, they've legalized right about the same time Oregon did. They're neighboring states to each other. Washington, I believe their initial tax structure was 25% on the sale to the processor, 25% on the sale to the dispensary, and then 25% on the sale to the customer, 75% tax on it. Well, the people of Washington just drove over to work. 
right. they just drove to Oregon where the tax is much more reasonable. So not only do you have to worry about what your neighbor states are doing, because people will go there. Um, I've got relatives now that uh, the, the gravitational pull in my family is now in the area towards Boston and New Hampshire. And as you drive up there through um, uh, Connecticut, and as you are about to approach New Hampshire, about 25 miles away, you start seeing the signs. You're only 25 miles away from a dispensary. You're only 20 miles. Oh, it's like Burma shave or something up there. So, um, uh, you know, that those are, but also you have to think about the legacy market as well. All right. Because there are a lot of consumers. There were 33 million people in the United States consuming cannabis on a regular basis before any state legalized it. So you know what? A lot of them have their guy or their gal and they like their guy or their gal. And you know what? They're smart consumers and they're comparing prices. The really interesting thing that happened was in Massachusetts, they had a fentanyl scare up there. They had, um, uh, they had found that there was some cannabis that somebody had laced with fentanyl. They believe it's only one person and only about 10 people were affected by it. I don't think there was a death, but um, uh, oh my God, right afterwards, people flocked to the dispensaries. They got, uh-oh, I'm not sure about my guy or my gal anymore right now. But um, no, all of these issues are absolutely, you know, uh, 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 important, critical, um, and but not cannot be weighed that islands of legality, we're not just an island in Maryland, we're affected by the islands next to us. And Chad, one of the things that you just said about, you know, the tourism market, and you could see how somewhere like Ocean City would be concerned about the number of dispensaries that wanted to come in and the type of business that they were attracting and all of these things, like, you know, in Ocean City, there aren't like adult clubs, right? There are no strip clubs there, and that's for a reason, and they've made a decision to do that. But you know, we've talked about not limiting the number of dispensaries, no caps. What do you think about the, the zoning aspect of all this? I mean, obviously, that's something that's important to local governments. We want to have some control. We also are interested in the revenue structure here, of course. But there has to be a zoning issue here. There has to be a structure for that. Because, again, if you're in a high tourist place like Ocean City, you don't want these popping up on every corner, I would assume. Right. So oh. how what do, you, what do you think the answer is for that? Where's where do you draw the line between, you know, the, the the zoning power locally? And then also we want these businesses to thrive. We want the industry to thrive in the state. What are your thoughts on that? I think they will thrive no matter where they are. I don't think they need to be on Route 1. And if I were the people of Ocean City and, and don't want them on Route 1, I would say zone them out of Route 1. I think it's mm -hmm. a really easy answer there. Let me tell you a real quick story about um, uh, uh, Tony Toskoff. He owns uh, Greenpoint Wellness here in Anne Arundel County here. And uh, he came to my class, addressed the class, and a student asked him an amazing question. I mean, God, I was so proud of the student. He said, was there a decision you made that you thought was a poor decision that turned out to be a good decision. Hmm. And he said, yes, he said, my initial location, and he's up in Linthicum, and, and if you've never seen me, you go down by the hotels, and then you take a right-hand turn at a dead end, and then if you go any farther, you're gonna go through a really, really serious fence with a whole bunch of Razor Concertina wire because you're backed up to the NSA right there. So this <laughs> is not a location that any retailer would say, oh, I want a, a, a dead end uh, uh, where nobody is. Tony believes it's probably the best decision he's ever made because there are customers that really, you know, he was thinking route two, you know, the main drag in, in right. Anne Arundel County there. And he was thinking, you know, I got to be here. I got to have people see me and stuff like that. Uh, uh There's a lot of customers that don't want to be seen going into a dispensary for whatever reason. I mean, we know it's a, the, 
the plant is conflated. Uh, 10,000 years, it was simply medicine. It's only been the last 125 years that we've all of a sudden have gotten crazy over this plant here. But um, no, I think the issue for, uh, well, here's another issue with Ocean City. I'm not sure it is that attractive uh, uh, of a market, mainly because you're going to have to basically try to get 12 months of sale in, a, in about three or four months. And then you're going to have about seven or eight, nine months where it's going to be pretty, pretty light. And guess what? Your landlord still wants the rent and you still got to pay the utilities and stuff like that. So I'm not, yes, I think it's attractive, but I'm not sure how super attractive it is, but I absolutely believe let the localities determine where these things can be. Well, that's good stuff from where we sit. Cause I think that's, I, I think it's a part of the debate. I, I don't think Annapolis is likely to say, no, you lose that ability. We're going to place these. You must do them here, there, and everywhere, and so forth. I don't think this will be that kind of decision, but that's the sort of thing that we look, we we would show up in this debate on. I think we're not central players in this policy is policy argument, and some of the things you've talked about are not exactly county government issues, but they are interesting. They are important, and they're very much on the minds of policymakers in Annapolis. So. We're really grateful to have you with us today to to bring a lot of this stuff into perspective. A number of things you talked about, I wasn't even thinking about before today. So, and I'm sure a number of our listeners will feel uh, the same way. So, like anything else on your scorecard that you wanted to get through that that we didn't prompt you for or whatnot that uh, is worth leaving behind for our policy wonk type listeners. Well, I mean, let's just let's just close out here, I guess, by talking about what I think some of the benefits will be of having recreational or adult use cannabis here in Maryland. And sorry to keep flipping back and forth, but it's a new industry and the terminology right. is, yeah, yeah. is literally all over the place. Um, uh, you know, for a while it was the illicit market and then it was the black market. And now I, I've gone with legacy. I kind of like that one like here, legacy. but somebody else said pioneer, the pioneering market <laughs> and stuff. And, you know, listen, that's another really interesting thing about this industry is that most of the knowledge in this industry is held by people that probably can't actually legally work in this industry. There have been mm-hmm. growers. I believe in Malcolm Gladwell. All right. I believe if you repeat doing things over and over and over and over again, that you will get better at that. I think it's 10,000 is the number or something like that. I just don't have the discipline. I like to play golf, but I hate going to the driving range and stuff like that. So listen, the smartest growers on the planet are the ones that have had the most grows. They've gone through, you know, 50, 30, 40, 50 grows in the last 25 years. They're not going to get a sniff of this industry here. So let's close out here. I guess the last thing I would like to say is just kind of talking about some of the benefits and some of the some of the the you know some of the 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 the, the costs or some of the uh, you know uh, problems that may arise because of adult use there. Um, so uh, Michael, you did mention one of them, and that is, do we want this type of business around us? Do we want this type of business around us? I challenge people to go to the dispensaries. You know, I think they are, most of them are beautiful. I mean, they're almost spa-like. Um, you can go in the lobby. You don't have to have your card. And, you know, they do actually sell, you know, pure CBD products in there. So if you're interested in those types of things, but I absolutely challenge you to to, to go see these facilities, um, the grow facilities, the processing facilities. They're in industrial areas. People aren't going to be affected by these. I think all of the dispensaries have attempted to be good neighbors 
Um, I know over at Mono Supply, uh, CJ over there, Chris Jensen, he's been, you know, very active and trying to, you know, in the food deserts and things like that and, and trying to be supportive of the community. He wants to help out at the community college. I've mentioned Tony uh, Toskoff has come down, been a judge and done some things other in, um, uh, in other classes and stuff like that. So I think they have been tremendous uh, uh, community members. And I think most people, yes, I understand the fear. Um, but I think if they go and see some of the dispensaries, I think some of that fear would be alleviated. I think some of the benefits are going to be 200 to 250 million in tax. Like I said earlier, I think we're going to create jobs in Maryland. I think the ancillary impact, I think HVAC, plumbing, real estate are all types of businesses that are going to, you know, benefit from it. We have seen a modest uh, drop in uh, teenage cannabis use when it becomes legal in a state. Um, I guess when grandma starts walking into a dispensary, it just ain't as cool anymore. Um, traffic deaths and DUIs definitely go down. Um, and we see a diminishment in the legacy or the uh, pioneering market there. Um, I think we still have some, some potential problems. I mentioned one of them before, and they will field growth if they have recreational because they are chasing the yield. The plant outdoors would be about eight to 10 times bigger in terms of biomass than a plant grown indoors. And you've got that big old uh, yellow thing up in the sky providing your free, um, uh, free sunlight there. Um, I, I think another issue in Maryland that needs to be addressed, and this is kind of a big issue here, and that is kind of the... Uh, a sustainability issue in this industry. It's pretty bad. It's pretty bad. Um, two things real quickly here. Number one, the plant likes to grow in about 75 to 83 degrees. It is not 75 to 83 degrees right now. The facilities are being heated. You know what it's like here in the middle of the summer. There's a lot of air conditioning going on. There is a lot of, 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 of air handling equipment there that has to be done. But my issue is a, is a simpler one. And one of the ones that I keep telling my students about, and I want them to get on, and that is the packaging. The packaging is absolutely ridiculous. Uh, in Maryland, um, if you went years ago and you bought from your guy, you got a, a baggie. And that baggie weighed less than a gram. And if he went to the Ziploc, it weighed 1.3 gram. Now we have a, a plastic that has infused a piece of metal to it. So it is no longer recyclable even. All right. And that weighs 5.5 grams. We are creating garbage in this industry. And that can be dealt with legislatively. Hemp based recycling, recyclable packaging. That is my mm. four uh, word uh, um, uh, uh, benefit for the day here. I think you're going to have HR challenges. Um, we are going, you know, I, I do a lot of work within the supply chain as well. Um, and I work with a lot of trucking firms here in Maryland and, you know, they, they kind of turn to me and they they look at me and they're like, Hey, shit, I can't find anyone that can pee clean. And I'm like, hey, I'm just teaching the class here. I'm not growing anything. Um, but I think that we are going to have some HR issues that are going to have to be worked out and going to have to be worked out also at the government level here. Yeah. Plus you don't have a test, right? Like we don't right. have, there's no, there's no parallel to the blood alcohol test. You know, if someone's driving a forklift erratically, you can theoretically breathalyze the guy and find out whether he's under the influence right now. There's no, to my knowledge, there's no scientific analog for whether somebody is right now 
under the influence of cannabis, right? Uh, they're working on it. Again, one yeah. of those ancillary businesses that I think, uh, you know, if you can yeah. figure that out. Well, the only way we can tell is, uh, is is a blood test. And I can't see a police officer pulling somebody over or your supervisor because you're driving the forklift a little weird, uh, uh, pulling out the needle and drawing blood from you here. So, no, that's <laughs> absolutely an issue. Yeah. Absolutely an issue. Well, Shad, thank you so much. Always a wealth of knowledge. We always enjoy talking to you. Let let drop your Twitter handle. You know, promote your class a little bit before we let you get out of here. We'll share it all in the all notes, right. but I want you to have the opportunity to do it here too. All right, no problem. And thank you guys, uh, Kevin, Michael. It's always it's great to have these types of a conversation because this is a conversation. Um, you know, radio for 10 minutes, that's pretty good. Radio for three minutes, that's, you know, I got to I gotta use the cute lines, islands of right. legality, sea of illegality and stuff like that. Um, I'm at Shad from DC. That's my Twitter handle, at uh, Shad from DC. And the class at Anne Arundel Community College is BPA227, Entrepreneurial Opportunities in Emerging Markets, colon, Cannabis Legalization. No, I did not pick that title because everything in the cannabis world is a, a, is a compromise. My initial title for the class would have been Ganjapreneurship. I thought that was pretty cool. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, I needed to get the class passed and I needed to, you know, and sometimes in education, just like in politics, we make compromises to get things done. Very good. Very good way to bring it back home for an audience full of politics and policy wonks like the Conduit Street faithful. So this is this has been great. Thank you so much. All right. We'll leave it there for today. As always, if you enjoy the podcast, please go ahead and subscribe. That way, all of these episodes will be sent directly to the device of your choice. You can also follow along on social media. Facebook, Twitter, and then, of course, the Conduit Street blog. But for Michael Sanderson and Shad Ewart, this is Kevin Canale signing off, and we will talk to you soon. Mm -hmm.